As uh, Erica mentioned, uh, last, week, last week we did miss you guys. Um, we were unfortunately out in Dallas with 75 degree weather and sunny, so we're just sorry that we were there. Um, it, was, it was fun to be out there. Now, but some of you guys might know, um, God's given Erica and I the opportunity to speak at marriage conferences four times a year called Weekend to Remembers. And so we were out at one near, near just outside of Dallas, Texas, and it was a great time. Uh, I just want to say thank you to you, Brooke family, for um, just the encouragement you guys give us to do that. And uh, we don't feel guilty for not being here, nor do we feel afraid when we're not here, like, man, what's going to happen, you know? So we, we're grateful for just great leadership, grateful for Jeremy, who preached last week. Um, this was a great time. You know, we're telling the, the couples out there at this marriage conference, you know, when, you're, when your car gets a check engine light and turns on, what, what do you do? You, you, you take it into the shop. If you don't take it into the shop, you're going to end up on the side of the road. Or if your uh, oil light comes on or the gas tank gets low, you've got to maintenance the vehicle because if you don't maintenance the vehicle, it's going to break down. And, and so for those of you who are married out there, I just want to encourage you to maintenance uh, your marriage. You know, a lot of times we keep going. All the lights are starting to, our dashboard is like a Christmas tree, you know. And, and really what we got to do is just get in and say, all right, we got, we got to just get some time and, and, and fill each other up here. So just a word of encouragement to do that because life's hard. Life's hard for every one of us. Uh, single and married, and we got to maintenance our relationships, and marriage, of course, is important. Uh, today, we're going to find ourselves in the book of Mark, chapter 10, and um, we've been working through the book of Mark, and we should be on chapter 10, verse 13 today, but we're going to pause, and we're going to jump over that passage. We're going to skip Mark 10, 13 through 16, because next week, we have a great treat. Our brother, Bruce Olson, uh, will be preaching here next week, and uh, Bruce is going to be talking about uh, the passage which is on parenting and how to, how to raise our children. And I say our children because we at the brook are family and the children of the brook are our children. So when we serve with the brook kids or the nursery and we're in real community, we see the kids. Uh, God's given us a responsibility to, to show kindness and love these children. And, and Bruce will be talking about that, talking about parenting and raising, especially even youth and teenagers. Uh, he and Debbie have plenty of experience in that, so I'm glad you guys will be hearing from Bruce. So that's why we're skipping over the let the children come to me passage. We'll be saving it for next week. Today we find ourselves in Mark 10, verses 17 through 31. Mark 10, verses 17 to 31. And we're going to talk about the topic of money today. You might be surprised to know that there are 2,350 verses in the Bible about money. How about that? 2,350. I didn't count it, by the way. Someone else did. But Jesus talks more about money than he does about heaven and hell combined. How about that fact? I often ask, why does Jesus and why does the Bible say so much about money? I I think the answer to that question is important, seeing that we live in one of the wealthiest nations in the history of the world. You might say, you haven't seen my bank account. And uh, what I do want to say is, man, we, we do live in a wealthy time, and we are wealthy people uh, on many standards. And I know a lot of us have different struggles, so I want to validate that. I want to acknowledge, yeah, we have financial struggles, and some of your struggles are very real. So I'm not trying to minimize that. But when we look around globally and throughout history, uh, we, we have a roof over our head. We have running water. It's cold outside, and you have a heater. You're going to eat today probably. And from what I could tell, you're all wearing clothes. And so we live in a time, we live with wealth. And sometimes we tend to not realize that. 
And so the fact that the Bible says so much about wealth is an intriguing thought. I have to ask, why, why Jesus? Why talk so much about wealth? I think the first one is um, our money has a lot to do with our following Jesus. We might not realize it, but that's the, that's the truth. How we view money affects how we live. And the fact is, money, secondly, is necessary. All of us need it. You can't live without it. You need money to eat. You need money to live. We need it. And the very fact that money is constantly in front of us, or the idea of money, it, it makes it hard to, to know how to deal with it sometimes. Because we have our own desires. We want more. We want bigger, better things. And yet we realize, man, maybe you realize that's a wrong desire, but the fact is money's in front of me always. And so the fact that Jesus talks about it, I think, man, that's, I'm grateful for that. I'm happy that he gives us instruction about money. Another thing is, how many of your conflicts in life revolve around money? Anybody have conflict that revolves around money ever? Marital conflict, school conflict, singleness conflicts. Career conflicts, schooling. You guys have any schooling conflicts around money? Mortgage, eating out, insurance, generosity, investments. Any of those ring a bell so far? Groceries, hobbies, shoes, shoes, <laughs> shoes. <laughs> we know the truth. Employment, job, promotion, tax returns. Spending, birthdays, holidays, savings, retirement, owning, renting, standard of living, giving, and the list goes on, doesn't it? I mean, so much of our life revolves around money, and so many of our conflicts revolve around money. And so I'm glad that God talks about money, and he gives us an idea of how to view money. It's important to know, though, that money is not, is not said to be in the Bible as bad. Money's not a bad thing. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, was a very wealthy man. We've been reading through the book of Genesis with some brothers that I meet with, and we realize, man, Abraham had a personal army in his household, all right? So dude had some money. Job, Job had money. The Bible says Job had 14,000 sheep. 14,000 sheep. I mean, we can't afford our two dogs sometimes, or one dog you got. 14,000 sheep. Imagine the land that Job needed, the cost for food, the people to care for it. And if that weren't enough, he's got 6,000 camels, 2,000 oxen, and over 1,000 donkeys. Job was a wealthy man. King David, well, he was a king. He had a kingdom. He had wealth. And last but not least, Joseph of Arimathea. He was a man who owned this beautiful tomb, the tomb of a king that was prepared for his own death and burial. But when Jesus died, he gave his tomb to Jesus. Jesus was put in the king's tomb that was owned by a wealthy man who followed Jesus. Wealth isn't bad. Money isn't wrong. What the Bible talks about is what we do with it, how we view it, what it does to us. Uh, Erica and I were watching a documentary with the kids not long ago on planet Earth, and we were looking at a movie about mountains. And they had a group of people who went on a helicopter in the Swiss Alps. And there was a cameraman there. And what you notice is in the helicopter, they carried dynamite with them. And they would take these sticks of dynamite, light them while on the helicopter, and throw them into the mountain. And I'm like, what are they doing, right? And so apparently there was a heavy snowfall, and they knew, by, because of the inches of snow that was there, that an avalanche was going to happen anytime soon. So they took this dynamite, they throw it into the mountains to do a man-made avalanche. And so they would make sure the mountains were clear of people. And sure enough, they threw it out, and there's this avalanche that happens. You're like, wow, 
And they said, if you didn't do that, you never know when hikers could be on the mountain and an avalanche could come when you didn't expect it. So in this case, the dynamite was used for something that saved people's lives and benefited those who lived in the area. Well, we all know that dynamite can be very destructive. It could take life. It could destroy buildings. And money really is the same way. Money has its constructive elements and its destructive elements. It could be a benefit or it could be a detriment. See, it's all by the way we use and view our money that makes the world of a difference. And so the fact that God wants to give us the right perspective and the right understanding, to me, is a great comfort. I don't want to be destructive. I don't want to be a slave to it. And so this is where Jesus gives us this instruction in Mark chapter 10. Would you meet me there in chapter 10, verse 17? I'm going to read this passage for us. It's a lengthier passage, but I'm going to read it all just to get it in front of us, and then I'll come back and go over the parts that we want to talk about today. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and following. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? It's another great question. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the man said to Jesus, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Can you say loved him? Loved him and said to him, You lack One thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words But Jesus said to them again, just in case you didn't hear it, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And he said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God, uh, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. These are God's words for us this morning. Indeed, Jesus talks about wealth here and gives us a great perspective. We see from the very start, a man comes to Jesus and kneels down at his feet. We find out later on in verses 22 and on that the man's a wealthy man. 
He has great possessions. We find out in the book of Matthew chapter 19 that he's a young man. And so we here have this young, rich man who comes before Jesus and humbles himself. He kneels down at the feet of Jesus with a very sincere and genuine heart. So he asks a question, not trying to manipulate, not trying to corner Jesus, not trying to trap him as the religious leaders do. No, this, this man comes to Jesus with a very real question. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Man, what a great question, isn't it? You know, the truth is many of us are asking those kinds of questions. The people in your lives are asking questions like that. You ever heard that one? Hey, how do I get to heaven? Does what I do in this life affect me for eternity? That's the question that this rich young man is asking. And, you know, I just want to put this on your minds, church family, as a side note. We're entering the holiday seasons. We've got Thanksgiving and Christmas. And this time of the year, as Bruce was mentioning earlier, brings up a lot of thoughts and emotions in people's minds. We start thinking about big picture kind of things. Like what really matters. Like what, like what life is all about. And I encourage you to be preemptive. Pull a friend aside and say, hey, you ever thought about eternity? You ever thought about what goes on after this life? And let God use that as a gap you could bridge as we were singing, lead us, God, to people that we can tell about you. Here this man comes to Jesus with the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replies to the man's question with one of his own, and we've seen that with Jesus. He loves to answer a question with another question. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, hey, I'm not God. He's just saying, hey, why do you call me good? He wants the man to start asking questions like, hey, what's your standard of goodness? Why do you perceive that I'm a good person? What's on your mind? What's going on here? And Jesus asks the question to begin to penetrate the man's own heart because the man we're going to see perceives himself to be a pretty good person. And you know what? That's the truth. We talk to people that think, I'm a pretty good person. So they think about getting to heaven, the first answer in their mind is, well, I'm a good person. And so Jesus asks the guy, the guy on his own terms, saying, well, you've heard the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud and honor your father and mother. So Jesus lays out some commandments for this man because he knew that's what this guy was thinking. And the guy said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And some of us are like, man, dude's a liar. I know he hasn't done all that. But here, understand one thing. In the Jewish faith, there, there is a sense where they looked at the Ten Commandments and say, you know what? No, I really have followed those laws. I, I haven't killed someone. I haven't stolen. I honor my parents. And they'll, they'll look at the list and say, I haven't done that. And the truth of the matter is, as according to the law, they can say, hey, I'm blameless. I have, have not broken these laws. In a very outward standpoint, that may have been the case. But as we see, Jesus never goes just with the appearance. He looks at our hearts. And so this man really thought he had done what he needed to do. And so he's thinking, hey, is this enough to get me to heaven? Is this what I've got to do? And I love how verse 21 there says, Jesus looking at him loved him. He loved him. You know, this is the only person in the, in the book of Mark that it says that Jesus loved him. And I think what it is behind it is this. Jesus sees this man with all the sincerity in his heart. 
And he sees this man who's got everything all together. He's got the wealth. He's got the riches. He has possessions. His life seems to be lining up. And you know what? Ultimately, he's a pretty, quote, good guy. Jesus sees this man, and he loves him. He has compassion on him because Jesus says, you think your life is all together when your life is actually all falling apart. And so Jesus isn't going to play this game, but he has true compassion at the man because the man didn't have what he truly needed. Jesus says to him, you lack one thing. You've got everything in the world, rich young man. Everything. Morality, possessions, probably notoriety, fame. But this is one thing you lack here. He says, go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. Man. Talk about getting to the heart. Jesus is saying, you've got everything, but what you don't have is a willingness to give up everything, to follow me. And we see by the man's response how he takes Jesus' words. And it's a sad moment. It says in verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The man came with the purpose of following Jesus and leaves Jesus' presence because he can't do what Jesus asks him to do. Jesus says, give up everything, and then you're ready to come and follow me. Boy, that's, that's a penetrating thing, isn't it? Because here we are, people who live in America, who have a lot of wealth. What does Jesus mean when he says, give up all you have, come and follow me? Because Jesus in Mark 6, in Matthew 6, verse 24, he says these words. He says, no one can serve two masters. You either hate the one and love the other or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus realizes that though money is necessary for living, it should not be the God of our hearts. And Jesus says, if you're going to live for money, you cannot live for God. And so with this rich young man, Jesus looks at this guy and says, look, you only can have one God. Which one will it be? Is it your wealth or will it be the God of the Bible? And in true sadness, the man made his decision and he walked away. He walked away from Jesus. See, what Jesus is doing here, he wants to give the man and us by application a new perspective on money. He wants to give you and me a new perspective on money. We already established that money is the source of a lot of our conflicts. We've established that money is necessary for life. We also have established we live in one of the most wealthiest nations in the history of the world. So, all right, God, give me a new perspective here. I need to see it as you want me to see it. So I'm going to give you a spoiler here, all right? Spoiler alert. And I say that um, I was at a church some years ago where the pastor got up and he was using a movie as an illustration, but it was a movie that was still in the theater, and so he's telling the story of the movie, and people are like, oh, yeah, I want to go see that movie. He's like, yeah. And in the end, everyone dies, he said. People were like, really? Did you just say that? He told his, it was a spoiler. So here's a spoiler alert for you, all right? It's not a movie one. Your currency has no value in eternity. <laughs> Your currency has no value in eternity. That, that's my spoiler alert for you. So when you get to heaven, don't be surprised when your money has no value. That's a starting point, church family. You have never seen 
a hearse pulling a U-Haul, have you? You you can't. There are no U-Hauls in cemeteries. John D. Rockefeller, the, the wealthiest man perhaps to ever walk this earth, he's an American man, died in 1937. He was worth at his death $340 billion. Can you imagine what that's like? He was four times more wealthy than, um, than Bill Gates is today. And Bill Gates is the wealthiest man in the world right now. So John D. Rockefeller, four times wealthier than Bill Gates. At the time of his death, someone asked his accountant, he says, how much money did he leave behind? And his accountant looked at the man and said, all of it. He didn't take one penny of his $340 billion with him to the grave. See, God's perspective on wealth is something altogether different than what many of us do, especially in our culture and society. A man named Randy Alcorn wrote a book called The Treasure Principle. We'll be talking about it in our real communities in a few weeks. And he lays out a number of important principles about wealth that really God wants us to understand that this passage gives us a springboard into. The first principle he mentioned is an important one is this. God owns everything. God owns everything. We read in Psalm 89, 11 earlier, and Psalm 24, verse 1 reiterates that same truth. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Realize this. Everything that you own does not belong to you. Think about your bank accounts. Take a long look into your bank accounts. Some of you are like, that's a short look, all right? That's a short look. But whatever you've got, it's not yours. It belongs to God. And this is a point that the rich young leader misunderstood. Because if our wealth is not our own, then we don't hold on to it. You ever seen the show Hoarders? People just hoarding, they just keep grabbing things, and then when it comes time to move, they're like, I can't let it go. But you're like, you're living in like a horrible situation, but they can't let it go because they think it's theirs. The rich young ruler failed to understand this and failed to hold his wealth with an open hand. A second important principle is this. My heart always goes where I put God's money. Not where I put my money, <laughs> My heart always goes where I put God's money. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The rich young leader's treasure was in his possessions. And the very thought of relinquishing what he had made him despair to the extent in which he refused to follow Jesus. Where your treasure is, family, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure today? Where is your treasure? Is it in a hope? Is it in a possession? Is it that car you've been finally got that you've been wanting? Is it that home you finally live in that you've wanted? Is it that new promotion you got? Where is your treasure? Now remember, none of the possessions we have on earth are inherently wrong in and of themselves. But they could become a God in our lives. We live in a very materialistic culture. We were joking about this in our real community group this past week. We said, you buy a new TV, you buy the biggest, baddest one out there, you put it up in your house, you turn it on, and there's a commercial for a new one that's bigger, right? And you're like, man, I should have waited. 
It's this materialism where what we have just isn't enough. And it's just, it's our human condition. And so Jesus reminds us, hey, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. So we've got to ask, where is our treasure? Randy Alcorn says, giving is the only antidote for materialism. You find yourself holding on to everything. Well, the only way to let go is by letting go, giving it away. The man also failed to understand this thing. The heaven is our home, not earth. Philippians 3.20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven is our true home. As I mentioned, Erica and I have had some opportunities to do some traveling this year, which has been pretty fun. And we stay at hotels in various times. What if I told you that this last time we brought a bunch of picture frames with us? And when we got the hotel room, we took down some paintings and put up some family portraits. What if I told you that we had UPS drop off our oven because we really like that one? We brought our own mattress. We changed out the curtains to match what we like. Put in some new flooring in the hotel room. You'd be like, that, why would you do that for? No one does that. Why? It's not our home. It's not our home. And yet so many of us plant ourselves in this life, and we're like, God, this is where I'm staying. This is where I'm investing. This is what I'm living for, and I'm not going to pay attention to eternity. Now, now don't go home and start taking out your family pictures. Like, it's okay to have pictures up, right? But there's a mindset that goes with this idea that this earth is all that there is. And Jesus wants us to understand, look, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Notice what Jesus tells this man in verse 21. This is mind-blowing. He says, give everything to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. See, Jesus isn't against treasures. He's not against accumulation. He just says, don't put it in this life. Send it ahead of you into heaven. That's where your treasure needs to be. And the truth of the matter is, hear this, church, your greatest treasure, if you are a child of God, your greatest treasure is God himself. There is nothing more valuable than him. And so Jesus is like, hey, man, don't look at your money, your bank account, your wealth, your possessions, your dreams. Let me be your greatest treasure. Our citizenship is in heaven. Another point that this man, Randy Alcorn, brings up that this rich young ruler fails to understand is that God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but my standard of giving. You see, by application here, the rich young ruler didn't want to let go of his possessions, but I'm sure he was living a pretty nice lifestyle. And what, what, what God wants us to understand is when he chooses to increase our wealth, it's not so that we could get a bigger and better whatever. It's so we can give far more sacrificially and generously. Now notice, it's not bad to own a house. It's not bad to have a nice car. It's not wrong to have nice shoes. But who owns what in that situation? Are those your possessions or do they possess you? And so what Jesus wants to say, hey, you have in order to give. So, so don't, don't bank up in this life 
give away. Increase your giving, not just your living. In the Old Testament, God told his people to give a tenth of all that they had back to him. He told the people in the fields, when you work the fields and the harvest time comes and you bring in all the fruit and the vegetables, I want the first 10% of all you've got. And that was the principle that God gave his people throughout the Old Testament. He said, because all of that is mine to begin with, and I want to make sure that that doesn't become an idol in your life, give back to me what is already mine. And there's a time in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, where God's people didn't do that. They held on to their possessions as if it was theirs and no longer God's. And God has a scathing rebuke to them. And he follows it with a man, amazing hope. He says this, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you, God? And God tells him this, this is how you rob me. He says, in your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Wow. God says, you're robbing from me. You're stealing from me when you're hoarding your possessions, when you're hoarding your wealth. Because it's my wealth. But then he says on the flip side, when you give and you give sacrificially and you give generous, generously, just watch me show up. Watch how I provide for you. Now, some people have taken these words and twisted them. You give God a hundred, he'll give you back a thousand. You give him a thousand, he'll give you ten thousand. That's manipulation. That's evil. But you know, our Father in heaven is generous. He owns all things. And he tells us, hey, meet me in that place. Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15, that passage says God wants a cheerful giver. And we were talking about this in our real community last week, and someone says, yep, not a tearful one. He doesn't want us crying, God, here you go. I don't want to do it. He wants to say, hey, God, this is yours. I want you to use it. I want you to do great things. I want you to advance the gospel through it. I want to bless the poor. I want to feed the hungry. I want to love those in need. Use my finances. We take an offering every single Sunday here at the brook, and we don't want to be hoarders. We want to invest, and we're putting money aside because we want to plant churches, and we want to take a church planter one day and say, hey, we believe in you. We have our, you have our blessing, and here is a significant sum of money. Go start a church and honor God. You know, this past week, I was overjoyed as a church. We were able to give to Pastor Wilson from Liberia, Africa, a check for $2,500 to help pay for the vehicle that he was trying to purchase. And so the the vehicle is being shipped from Philadelphia to Liberia because it's cheaper to buy a car in the States and ship it than it is to buy one in Liberia. It's crazy. But that car is going to allow him to drive out into the bushes, out into the, the countryside and plant churches and train pastors. Man, we want to do more of that as a church. And I pray you would want to do more of that as an individual. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, Jesus unpacks this man's response. 
He sees him walk away. Imagine Jesus' heart's like just sorrowful knowing that this man just couldn't let go. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. This should make us all listen up here. Because as I've already stated, many of us, most of us, perhaps all of us, would be considered globally wealthy people. And here Jesus says, it's difficult for wealthy people to get to heaven. So I'm like, all right, God, I want to hear what you got to say. Verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, just in case you didn't hear me, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I mean, hear what Jesus is saying here. If I had a needle in my hand right now, you probably wouldn't even be able to see it, let alone the eye of the needle from which the thread goes into. And Jesus is saying it would be easier for a camel to get through that eye than it would for a rich person to go to heaven. That's, that's something. What is it? What is it about that, Jesus? Well, that's exactly the thing. See, he wants us to understand that in order for any one person, especially those of us who have means, to go to heaven, a miracle needs to happen. Jesus tells them, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. For a rich person to get to heaven, a miracle needs to happen. And that miracle is that the person needs to understand that they need Jesus. See, at the very heart of this gospel, this good news we talk about, are these two words, I need. That's the heart of it. I need forgiveness. I need a transformation. I need a new life. I need new hope. But for us who are wealthy, for us who have means, for us of us who have a roof over our head today, the problem with that is it tends to cover up our true need. See, a couple months after Levi was born, we spent about four or five days in the hospital with Levi. He had a high temperature. It was over 104. And for several days, we were just giving him Tylenol at the hospital to to try to take the edge off of his temperature because it was dangerously high for him. But the doctors told us, hey, we can't send him home with you until his temperature gets back to normal. But the problem was we wouldn't know what his real temperature was so long as he was on Tylenol because the Tylenol masks the temperature. See, the infection in his body gave him the high temperature, and that's how we knew he had an infection. But when he was on the Tylenol, his temperature was down, and it was as if he was back to normal. See, the Tylenol masked the infection. That's that's what money does for us. See, we have a disease in our hearts. We are infected. Our hearts have an infection, and it's called sin. But the problem is, when we have possessions and comforts in life, we tend to mask our need with all kinds of things. Another vacation, another purchase, a new this, a new that. And these things start washing away or tend to hide the fact that we are truly needy. 
And so Jesus is saying, it's hard for needy, for wealthy people to get to heaven because wealthy people don't tend to acknowledge that they are needy. They mask the infection with their wealth. And so Jesus says these words. He doesn't blush. He doesn't apologize. He says, this is the truth. This is the truth. Needy people need Jesus. Wealthy people tend to not recognize their need. I ask you today, are you masking your need? Do you have a real need for Jesus that you're just, you're trying to cover it up? And you think, if I just buy that thing, I get those shoes, if I drive that car, if I just get away for another weekend, if I go out to dinner, watch that movie, whatever it is, you try to hide the need, it won't fix it. See, some might think, man, God, God it's unkind that you don't accept this man, this rich young ruler. The man, he didn't steal. He didn't commit adultery. He didn't kill. He honored his parents. God just accept the man. He's trying to be a good guy. But the truth of the matter is it would be cruelty for Jesus to say you're all good because he wasn't. And so in love, Jesus tells the man, are you going to let it go? Now, he may not be telling you to go sell your house today. I'm not saying that. But he's asking, if I told you to, would you? Jesus may not be saying, hey, maybe you don't have to give X amount of dollars to that organization, to that person who's needy. But if I asked you to, would you? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, Jesus says, it's that willingness to hold everything, everything with an open hand that precedes coming after him and following him. You cannot follow Jesus and follow the wealth for the sake of wealth. You cannot have two gods. You can't have two masters. And this was the young man's problem. See, this is where discipleship and money meet. See, I asked the question earlier, why does Jesus talk so much about wealth? The truth of the matter is because of this. Our wealth has a lot to do with discipleship, and our discipleship has a lot to do with our wealth. Let me unpack that for you. See, the way we understand our money affects the way we live out our lives. If we understand that our money is not our own, that our possessions don't belong to us, then in our following of Jesus, we're giving it all. We're saying, God, it's all yours. Yes, I could be responsible in saving. That's good. I could be responsible in purchasing to build equity. That's good. But God, all of it ultimately is yours. That's how our wealth affects our discipleship. And on the flip side, our discipleship says, hey, but that wealth doesn't belong to me. I'm following Jesus. Earth is not my home. Heaven is my home. And it works together. This is why Jesus spends so much time talking about wealth. At the end of the day, we learn generosity from God himself, don't we? One of the most popular verses in the Bible, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave. God gave. But what did he give? His one and only son, Jesus. So that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus says, I've left it all. God says, I've given all to give you life. And God's saying, now will you give all to follow me? One of the great leaders of the church, Martin Luther, while on his deathbed, 
was there in the middle of the night, and one of his best friends was there at his bedside. And as it neared 3 a.m., his, bre- his, his, his friend realized that this dear brother, Luther, was about to die. So he asked him this question on his deathbed. He said, do you want to die standing firm on Christ and the doctrine you have taught? That's a great question on your deathbed, isn't it? Are you going to die today standing upon the teachings of the Bible? And Luther said, yes. At that moment, he breathed his last breath at 3 a.m. and died. But that wasn't the last thing he said, if you will. Because in his pocket, there was a letter there. And as they opened the letter, they saw a number of things that were said. But one thing that has echoed since his death was this. Martin Luther wrote, We are all beggars. It is true. We are all beggars. It is true. No matter how much you have in your possession, it's not that until you can understand that you're a beggar, then you can really see your need for Jesus. You see, this is the gospel. If you're not a child of God today, I want you to hear this. If you are a child of God, I want this to ring in your minds. That when we come to God, we come with nothing on the table. And we come on our knees and we beg saying, God, I need you. I'm a sinful man, a sinful woman. I am infected to the core. I need you. And hear this. We come before a God who is not playing hard to get. He's not a God who's reluctant. He is a God who is generous and says, come to me, all you who are weary. Come and drink of the water that I give to you, and you will never be thirsty again. Come to me as a beggar, and I will meet you in that place. We are all beggars. It is true. So no matter what we own, we have to understand that very truth. See, our wealth is like dynamite, family. What you possess, every cent to your name, is like dynamite. Will you be constructive or destructive with it? Will you treasure up things in heaven or on this earth? Will you live for eternity or for the now? These are the words God has for us. This is the perspective of money he wants us all to have so that we can give him glory with his own wealth, what belongs to him, and find the greatest joy in it. God offers us a treasure, and when we find him our treasure, we find joy in that place. That's what we want for you, church family, as we see God's perspective of money. Indeed, we are all beggars. It is true. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess, Lord, that we, we often mask our need by buying and accumulating and just trying to fill up our lives, God. Um, but we're all like this rich young man to one degree or another. We know some of us don't have great possessions. Some of us don't have much to our name. But for all of us, God, you called us to be ready and willing to let go of all of it in order to follow Jesus. And so, Lord God, today, this afternoon, I pray, Lord, that we as a church family would say, God, all that I have is yours. Everything, God. I want to use it for your glory. I want to be wise in how I use my money. 
So, Father, and help us constantly remember that indeed we are beggars before a God who is generous and loving. We bring these things before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church family, it's great to just think about God and his goodness together. Let's rise to our feet. Um, prayer team, would you guys come forward and head to the back? We know that God works in our hearts in different ways every week. Sometimes uh, it relates to the sermon. Sometimes it relates to the singing. And sometimes it relates to something altogether different. But um, we believe that God works through prayer. And so that's what our prayer team is available for. So if you have a prayer need, please, 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 through this last song, let someone pray with you. Come forward, go to the back. We'd love that. If God is the treasure, if Jesus is the treasure of your life, um, I want us to sing this final song like we believe it. Like, like he is the best of the best. And let this room echo with the declaration of God's people. It says, God, we are beggars before a God who is generous. We love you, we worship you, and we adore you. So let that be what our voice proclaims. So let's sing together, church. song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you Jesus the name Jesus the name above every other Jesus, the only one who could ever save. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you.